The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. talking about Sasquatch, Bigfoot and Sasquatch, and thank you very much, Eric. That was a beautiful monologue. Um, well, my name is, is, is Val, and um, I profile Bigfoot Sasquatches, and I am the gumshoe guy. The gumshoe guy is a moniker. It's a, it's a moniker for a person that um, well, what it means is it's a it's a sleuth. It's a it's a uh, in law enforcement, a gumshoe guy is a is a uh, parlance for um, a detective. Mm-hmm. And what it means is a sleuth, a private detective. And, and that came about in the days long before computers and modern electronics, where a detective would uh, actually have to get out and walk the streets for clues and tells and hints in order to solve a crime. And his peers would judge the gumshoe guy by the amount of gum stuck on the, on the soles of his shoe. Thus, the name Gumshoe Guy. Interesting. I never knew that. Mm-hmm. It makes complete sense, but mm-hmm. I never would have put that together. So, uh, I spent 25 and a half years in the business. I worked with city, county, state, and federal agencies doing what I did. Uh, when I wasn't on the clock, I was a licensed state private investigator for hire. And I have been featured on history and A&E channel as a subject matter expert in the things that I did. Um, I instructed at two of Michigan's largest community colleges and wrote a published article for a large professional law enforcement uh, publication on the East Coast. And um, I was an invited uh, guest speaker for a large Midwest investigator conference in Illinois twice. And I also attended Madonna and 
Central Michigan University, and I hold a degree in community development from Central Michigan University. Um, so a very accomplished man. Well, slightly. I mean, I, I don't see it like that, but that's my history, and and that's, you know, good or bad. So, so that's what we do. Well, it's impressive, no less. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, there's no there's no looking at it and saying, well, this guy is just a, a yokel from uh, Muskogee who uh, wants to sit here and talk about Bigfoot. I mean, you've you've got some validity behind your uh, uh, your your processes and, and your education. So, I, I, and I and I guess I, I'm happy that you led with with all of that because so many times in the course of my life when I've, I've brought up the subject of Bigfoot, you get the laughs, you get the, the sneers and the, you know, rolling of the eyes and stuff like that. And they think everybody is, uh, that, that believes in this or, or even entertains the idea of this thing possibly existing is a complete idiot, you know, and a, and a backwoods doofus. And that's just not the case. There are some very accomplished people that are in this field, and I uh, I was also associated with a very large international intelligence group, in which I had to be vetted and invited into. And when I retired, mm-hmm. I had to step away from it. And the reason why I'm saying this is because this is part of who I am and where I come from when I step into this into this arena. Mm-hmm. And I might I might add this. This is not I never aspired to be a Bigfoot researcher. I didn't care about Bigfoots. I didn't know uh, two things about Bigfoot. I I've seen the newspapers. I've seen the the uh, uh, grocery store uh tabloids yeah yeah i mean i've seen that but uh, i never really gave it uh, two thoughts until later very later in my in my career and um when i was doing research for the kind of stuff i was doing i was looking uh, at some incidents that occurred in uh, bc uh, British Columbia, Canada, because we had very close uh, ties and connections with uh, law enforcement in, in Canada. And I was listening to this radio program, and I heard this person talking about missing 411 and stuff. But but while I was looking at these, uh, doing this research, I come upon these these articles of um, of um, missing body parts and stuff. And so I called this individual, and um, and um, he told me that he was he heard about that already. And but anyways, that that's the kind of the author told me that that um, you know he had, he was aware of that, and and he was looking to, looking into it and, and stuff. But I never did hear any more about it. So so that was kind of that was kind of your introduction yeah, to the the phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, is that what got you interested in it? No, or no, no. I, I still wasn't. Uh, it wasn't convincing to me, Eric. What mm-hmm. did it for me was, uh, as I mentioned earlier in my introduction, was as a private investigator. Um, I don't care who it is, but it's especially true with me. Um, there was something going on in my life. I worked midnights for probably 15 years. We're talking about 12-hour shifts, which is pretty rugged. It's it's pretty ruthless. Yeah. And if I had to do it all over again, I'd never do it like that. But I did it. And um, at some point towards the end of my career, I felt some changes coming on. I'm... I'm um, I'm a, I'm a pretty intuitive person, sensitive to a lot of things. I've, I've always known this. 
and carried it with me all through my career. But um, there was there was something going on in my life that that I didn't understand. But but I I felt it. I couldn't explain it, and I used to take it to my partner. My partner is Ojibwa Indian, and he and I have been in law enforcement for almost as many years. And I trusted him, and uh, he kept me safe, and I kept him safe on the street, and that's the way we worked. But if if I had something personal going on, I would go to him and chit-chat with him, and we would discuss it. He was a very, he, he is a very intelligent person, well-schooled, uh, well-degreed, double, mas- double masters, uh, very, very good guy. Anyways, so I explained to my friend, I says, you know, there's something going on. Well, what is it, Bill? I says, I don't know. I can't explain it, but I'm, I'm restless at night. Uh, I feel as though uh, there, there are some changes coming in my life, and I don't understand them. I don't understand what's going on. I'm restless. I'm, I'm having a hard time sleeping. And then one night I woke up because I felt as though, and, and I'm leading, what I'm leading up to is how I got into this. Mm-hmm. I woke up and because I felt as though somebody was standing over me calling my name out and I'm a completely sober person. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, uh, I'm not a drunk. I don't rely on alcohol, drugs or anything. I'm a pretty, pretty lucid, clear minded, open minded person. I've seen a lot of things. I read a lot, but I know that I heard my name called and I opened my eyes up. You know, and I let it go, and that's one of the things that bothered me. I was talking to my partner about, and maybe a, a week or two went by, and again, out of, out of a uh, sound sleep, one of the few times that I get these these sound sleeps, I open my eyes up and I see an Indian figure standing in my bedroom by the uh, bathroom door. And I, I'm thinking for sure this is a burglar. This is a thief that broke into my house dressed like this. Well, my natural reaction is to grab my gun. The problem was I couldn't get up. I couldn't move, but I wanted to wake my wife up, but she wouldn't wake up. You know, everybody that, that experiences things like this, they need a witness. They need somebody to, yeah. to see it with them. So are you saying you were experiencing sleep paralysis? Yes. That's probably the best way to describe this. But again, this is a series of things that are going on that mm-hmm. convince me that uh, I'm not understanding what's happening to me. Um, College-educated person. Uh, I'm, I did two tours in the military. Pretty sound person. Pretty, um, Thank you for your service. Pretty um, open person, open-minded person. But uh, so, anyways, uh, the feeling that I got as I was looking at this this person was to just relax. You know, they're not here to harm me, and and I'm not going to harm it, and it's not going to harm me, and and they're sorry that I seen it because I wasn't supposed to see it because they're just passing through. It's like. You know, they were they were passing through, and I happened to see them, and they were just as surprised to know that I could see them really? as as I was. You know, but anyways, so so another week went by, and I and I called this woman, this eighty year old woman in Ohio. Remember, I don't understand what's going on. But I have a need to call this woman in Ohio, 80-year-old. Her son disappeared 30 or 31 years previously down in Louisiana. Just disappeared. Hitchhiking, 19 years old. And uh, I, I woke her up at 3 o'clock in the morning, and I says, uh, 
I, I need you to tell me how your son disappeared. I need you to tell me everything that you remember about him. The phone call, the collect call that he made to you, tell me what he said, tell me how he said it. And she cried. She went through the whole thing. And when she finished and when she composed herself, I cleared I cleared my voice and I told her, I said, listen, I says, I, I want to tell you right now, I'm going to look for your son and I'm going to bring him home for you. That is my promise to you. And from that point on, you know what, you know what painted forward is, right? Mm-hmm. That's exactly what I was doing. There was something going on in my life, and, and this was my curtain call. I felt as though this was my curtain call. And I promised to, to look for her son and bring him home, even though when I hung up the phone and disconnected that call, I really didn't know what I was going to do to help her because this wasn't going to be an, an official investigation. What I do on my off time is my business, and it and it didn't involve law enforcement. And so the task ahead of me was was monumental, but I did not want to regress and go back on my commitment, my promise to this woman. It was important. It was Val. I got I got to interrupt you here mm-hmm. real quick and ask you. So the. The missing son. Obviously, this was this was a case you were already privy to, or did this just come to yes, you? Yes, yes, I, I, I was aware. You already knew about yes. it. Yes. Okay. And, and so, I'm just going to tell you right now, it's, it's a, his case remains a cold, a cold case homicide, unsolved. I did find him 21 months later. Did you really? and, and I had his remains uh, transported back to Ohio, and I eulogized at his funeral service. Oh and I retired the following Monday, went in and had enough. I was spiritually, emotionally spent. I was done. I seen enough. And a week went by or two weeks went by after this phone call with this old woman. One of the few times I've ever worked a day shift. I mean, nobody's, you know, rarely do people ever see me on teen shifts. It's like I was a night owl. Mm-hmm. But one of the few times I ever worked on a day shift, I get a, a call out of, out of the blue from a friend of mine that says, Hey Val, you working today? Yeah. Well, I need you to stop by my house. I says, well, what's going on? They said, well, there's a lady here that wants to meet you. And I'm going to tell you something, 25 and a half years on the job, when a strange woman calls you, your antenna should go up, your flag should go up. Because you don't know if you're going to be accused of something or if it's going to be a complaint. But uh, the important thing was that this woman wanted to speak to me and, and to me alone. So I go over there and talk to this woman I've never seen before in my life. I don't know who she is. She introduced herself. I introduced myself. And she says, I'm going to ask you some questions. And she says, I don't want you to give me a long answer. I want you to give me a yes and no answer. And I'm still musing about this because I don't know if this is a joke, if this is, if this is uh, supposed to be humor. But um, I talked to this lady and she says, you're a very old soul. You've been here many times before. And, I mean, I was, I was a little taken back by, by this woman. I mean, her, her forwardness, her, her bluntness. And she was asking me, she says, do you get headaches? I said, well, not, not really. I says, in the wintertime, occasionally sinuses and stuff, but nothing major. She says, uh, you want me to tell you how you died in your previous life? And I said, no, not really. I'm not interested in that. So uh, she tells me, she says, um, you work alone a lot at night? And I says, I do. She says, I would be very careful and very cautious of red vehicles and round red tail lights. She says, I hear gunshots. 
She said, I'd be, she said, I'm not, I'm not threatening. I'm not warning. I'm just telling you that is what I feel, what I see. She says, one of the last things she says, she says, I see a, I see an older woman with you all the time. She's, she's around you wherever you go, whatever you do, this, this regal woman, like a, like a grandmother figure, very tall. She's with you all the time, watching over you. She says, the last thing that this woman says, this mysterious woman says to me was, you're looking for somebody, and, and this is where you take that big gulp and stand back a minute, my ears perk up, and I said, yes. She looks at me. She says, they know you're looking for them. And they'll let you know when they're ready to be found. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, my friend, <laughs> that wakes you up when you hear something like that. I'll be honest with you, sir. When when I asked you to be on this show, mm-hmm. <laughs> I had I had no idea that this was the direction that this was going to go, and I'm I'm floored. I mean, that is that's amazing. I was, you know, I was shocked when I heard this from her mouth. Remember, I'm in uniform, yeah. and I'm not there to play. I'm not there to play humor with anybody. But to hear her say that, you know, it, it took me back a couple steps. And well, I would imagine they'll let you know when they're ready to be found. Well, I just told you a couple of weeks. Before that, I woke up because somebody felt as though somebody stood over me and called my name. Yeah. I'm not here. I wasn't hallucinating. I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty intelligent person, very sober, um, articulate. All this stuff to me means something. What it means or what it meant at that time, I didn't know. But um, as it were, I used I used um, mitochondrial DNA samples. I used the advice from this woman. I set out to do my own investigation, and in the long run, it was almost as though it was almost as though this was supposed to happen this way, and I was just a player in it. It wasn't anything that I did. It wasn't anything special that that I had a hand in. I was just a cog in the wheel, Eric. Yeah, you were the conduit. And um, when the forensic scientist down in New Orleans, Louisiana, found out that I was doing this free gratis as an act of compassion, as an act of paying it forward, as an act of humanity, they decided, you know what? We don't normally do this for outside agencies out of state because it incurs a lot of cost. It's very expensive for the scientists to to uh, receive this this DNA specimen. It, it's very costly for DNA uh, kits, but because you're doing this free gratis, our scientists here are gonna gonna going to uh, reciprocate and and as an act of paying it forward we're going to give you these dna sample kits though you'll receive them in the morning tomorrow morning you'll have ups at your doorstep delivering these packages and we're going to test them and we're going to analyze it for you free gratis no charge Amazing. i'm going to tell you something all of this stuff eric that i'm telling you is true and factual to the best of my ability and with that information, I was able to to um, get this young man, uh, get his information, his data, personal history and stuff, into a uh, large national database. It's called NAMUS, N-A-M-U-S. It's an acronym for all these unidentified missing people all across the country. 
and it's huge. There's hundreds of thousands of people in it. So I spent the better part of 21 months looking through horrible photos of, uh, of uh, deceased people, trying to match and mix uh, what this person would probably look like according to his height, weight, age, uh, race, everything. And um, what I was shocked and, and dumbfounded with was the number of, of people, bodies, unidentified, found all along the freeway, the corridors from, from uh, Florida all the way to uh, California. That's where I was shocked. In my travels, in my investigation, I met an old retired uh, crime reporter for Houston Chronicle down in, in uh, Houston, Texas. And she told me, uh, off the record, of course, that during the time that this, in, this individual went missing, there were no less than 20-some serial killers working the area. They knew from, from Houston to, uh, to Louisiana, and the public didn't know this because the public wasn't supposed to know this. It would frighten people to death to know this. And so um, 21 months later, I get a phone call, a, a furtive phone call, and, and some messages for me to call a medical examiner down in Houston, Texas. And I, I talked to the uh, medical examiner. They said, is this, uh, is this Val? And I said, yeah. They said, are you the person of record for this, this individual? And I says, I am. Okay. Are you going to contact the family member? And I says, I will. And they said, okay. I says, well, they said, we got some good news and we got some bad news. And I says, well, you know, I'm a chess player. I suck at poker. I says, give me the, give me the bad news first. They said, homicide. And I said, the good news? I mean, if there is any good news in that, they said, we know where he's at. And I says, where is he at? She says, we got him buried here as a John Doe. He's been here for several years. He carried no ID with him. Remember, this is in 1980. And in 1980, uh, Eric, there was no DNA. DNA didn't come to the United States. And, and it wasn't in use in law enforcement in the United States until in the very early 1990s. But I know for a fact in my in my experience in law enforcement is uh, in the in the times that I've been around the autopsies and stuff. Anytime that there's an unexplained death like that for anybody that comes in, they always pinch a little specimen off that off that person. That's DNA, and it's packed away like a library. It packs away in catalogs, books, and so it, it was very neat to see this process in reality, how it works. So they pinched a, a specimen from this, this individual back in the, in, in the 1980s and they held it for the future, knowing full well at sometime in the future, there might be a science, there might be a process for identifying this person or persons, which, you know, there's hundreds of them across the country like this. When the when the science is there, they're able to identify these people, and that's exactly what happened in this case. So the John no, the John Doe that was buried uh, five, six, fifteen years previous has a name, and he has a name because I brought it forward. And so, uh, as I said, we 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 got the we got the body back, and that was a uh, that was a an experience in itself because you're. You're, you're talking about crossing state lines and federal uh, interstates, so you have to have multiple permits, and and you're going to get uh, okays from everybody. And once this is done, the, the remains, the cremated remains, are brought back to the family, and there's a service, and he's properly foot, uh, properly uh, laid to rest with the family. And uh, I felt spiritually and emotionally spent 
I was exhausted. And um, I was asked to get into uh, another group uh, involving uh, retired federal uh, investigators to, to work on some, some other uh, closed cases and stuff. But um, to me, uh, it, it, it took a lot out of you. To me, it took a lot out of me, and it felt as though my life, uh, my lifeline was drained for me. And um, so once this was done, I retired, and I had all this free time to myself. I went back and located a friend of mine that I went to school with who is a uh, professional historical archivist, and I asked them a favor, you know, you, you always have friendships and 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 uh, things in life that you do well with people. And they they like you. They remember you. So they're always willing to help you in whatever endeavor you're involved in. So I asked them to pull up all the the known news articles on the Monroe 1965 Monroe Monster caper down in Monroe County, Michigan. And I went through that, read it, studied it, analyzed it, and made my own determination. And from that point on, I contacted uh, Bob Daigle, a a well-known Michigan Bigfoot researcher, and um, got to know him, went out hiking with him. And at that point, I started building a uh, database I started building a database and uh, and um, almost two years to the day, Eric, I had my own personal sighting Did in Washtenaw really? County, Michigan. Can you go into that? Yes. Uh, July 19th, thousand. 14, Bob Daigle and myself were out hiking. And uh, it was very, very hot. One of the hottest days that I remember. Mosquitoes were tearing us up. Mosquitoes, big flies biting us. We went through two cans of that off. I was tired. I was sweaty, hot, stinky. And um, it was probably 3 o'clock in the in the uh, afternoon, we decided to cross a uh, agricultural field, a state uh, leased. Um, I, I think it might have been a, either a cornfield or a, a soy field, soybean field. Mm-hmm. And we went into this uh, patch of uh, forest. And immediately when we went in there, uh, there seemed to be uh, acorns or something falling from the trees. Either, either that or, or something was thrown. But Bob had stopped me a couple times asking me what was that. And I said, well, it, it looks like acorns falling through the trees. You can hear it twinkling through the leaves and stuff. But uh, the further on that we progressed through the forest, uh, we heard a large crack. And I don't mean a, a stick. I mean a, a large branch, thick branch, crack echoing through the, uh, the forest. So we stopped, paused, made note of it, and continued forward. And uh, as we were continuing, continuing forward, we heard another crack, large break. And at some point, we, we, uh, we see this very, very large tree down. I don't know when it came down. But I do know that there was a large, it looked like a Bigfoot nest, big, large uh, pile of bramble tangle uh, brush with, with a hole in the center, probably uh, seven, eight feet long. And um, we were both looking at it. We had, to, we had to climb over the tree to look at it. I got back over on the other side of the tree, and I'm looking up in the trees. I'm looking around. I had a camera with me, and I'm watching Bob 
on his hands and knees looking inside that uh, that Bigfoot nest. And he determined that there was nothing in it. He couldn't see it, anything, although it was dark inside. And as I was doing that, I felt as though the eyes were on me. And I turned and looked on my right side. My right side, I always carry a gun. I always carry my, my weapon, a forty caliber. And um, when I did, there's, there's a beam on the side of a tree, probably 60 feet away from me, on the side of a tree, Eric, a large beam. I estimated it to be about eight and a half foot tall, all hairy, red hair, uh, looking at me. And my first reaction was, was shock. I mean, I'm trying to make sense of what I'm looking at. It's yeah. looking at me and I'm looking at it. And my first, my first comment out of my mouth is what the F and I'm not, I'm not, one, I'm not a person to, to use a lot of profanities. I just don't do that. But this, you know, what the F are you kidding me already? I, I kept saying, because it, you know, in my mind, it had to be a joke. It had to be, a, what are you doing? You know, the stupid person out here trying to play a joke on me wearing a ghillie suit. It's so hot out here. The mosquitoes are tearing us to pieces. And uh, I didn't notice any blinking eyes. I didn't know. I didn't notice any emotion. I thought maybe somebody would crack a, uh, a smile or anything, but there was nothing. It was just a, a blank, emotionless uh, stare. And then I called it a freak. I said, you freak, you. You freak. And uh, it seemed like at that point, it was almost as though I were in a trance or something because I felt as though I was thinking all kinds of stuff. And I, and I realized what I was doing. Um, it's easy to go into a shock or something like this. You see something like this, and you definitely want a partner. You want someone to see it. You remember what I said about seeing a burglar in my in my bedroom? Sure, trying you to see, wake your wife yeah, up. Yeah, you want to see something like this. You, you you want someone to witness it. Are you seeing things? You want to you want to validate whether or not what you're seeing is is what you're seeing. And then the realization was was creeping on me about this is what you were looking for right here, right here. I mean, this is what you you're out here looking for. Remember the old the old moniker, the old saying that says, uh, "Be careful what you wish for." Right, exactly. There you go. It's a live, living, breathing being. Eight and a half. Let me ask tall. you. Let me ask you, as far as the face is concerned, did you get a good look at the details of the face? Well, from sixty feet away, yeah, I, 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 I see, I see a face that looks. What it looks like to me, and the way I describe it, many times when I when I wrote this report out, was that the face, and it could it could have been from sweat, because we were sweaty, it was very hot. The face looked, and the complexion the complexion looked uh, very pink and pasty. And in my experience, uh, when I see death, that's exactly what it looks like. When when a person dies, they have that pasty. They're either white or gray, but they're, they've got a pasty, plastic look about their face. It was a sheen, and uh, that's exactly what I seen. And the reason why I called it a freak was because it looks so much like human, but they, but you know, unlike the petty uh, from from Patterson Gimlin films, you know, the the, the black gorilla. This thing had very little hair on the face, uh, but but plenty of hair on the shoulders, the arms, the chest, the legs, the thighs, the ankle, everything else. I mean, it was hair. So it looked like it. It looked very much like a cross between a hybrid, a cross between uh, a primate and a human being. Could you make? Uh, could you determine whether it was male or female? Uh, I, I didn't. You know. If, if I'll tell you, if it uh, if it uh, 
if it was female, uh, I would definitely see the breast because it exposed its entire right side away from the tree to, to, to stare at me. And if it was a male with, with uh, genitalia, it was extraordinary. I, I probably would have I would have seen it, but I didn't see it. No. I wasn't. But I have to tell you, I wasn't really looking. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I was yeah, looking at the face and and thinking about, you know, what is this thing on the side of a tree? And what if it comes down the tree? So it wasn't standing beside the tree. It was literally on the tree. Yeah, it was on the tree like uh, like 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 if if those great big long arms are wrapped around a tree and the feet are wrapped around the bottom of the tree, holding itself yeah. up. Oh shit. It, uh, I'm, I'm going to tell you something. There's a lot of things that went through my mind when I looked at this thing and, and I was very lucid in my thoughts and it felt as though it felt as though it were, it were an, an intrusion. It's the feeling was like if, if somebody is standing over your shoulder, Eric, and looking at your computer hard drive, looking through your files, that's an intrusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't want people looking over my shoulder, looking into my business. But that's the way I felt when this thing was staring at me. And I talked to Janice Carter about this, and I explained to her what I felt, what I thought uh, when this was going on. I says it's it, it probably was only a matter of minutes, but it seemed like a very very long time. And I says I can't tell you whether or not I was laying down or standing up, but I know it was standing up when I left. But I was thinking to myself, this is how people become victims of that because these things will put you right to sleep. They'll put you right to sleep. And if there anything, if infrared, infrasound is anything like what tigers and other predators do, mm-hmm. uh, that is how they incapacitate their prey. They put them right to sleep because I felt tired. I was drained. And um, the only thing that, that's kind of snapped me out of that, that, that hole was thinking of free will. You see, when when we're all when we're all born as as babies, as infants, we're given the the great the greatest gift of life, and that's free will. All of us have a choice. And the moment that I started thinking about free will, everything changed. Everything stopped. You know, I, I was ready to go. And I told Bob, I says, we have to leave now. And Bob, you know, Bob was saying, well, Val, what's wrong? What happened? What, why do we have to leave? I think we've got to go now. I'm sorry. Bob never saw the, the bean? No. His back was turned. Yeah. No. No, I, I was very insistent upon Bob. I, you know, I had to yell at him. Bob, we got to go. Why? I said, we have to go, Bob. I'll explain when we get out of here. But we have to go now. And um, I'll tell you, we made it out of that woods quickly. And as soon as we made it out of the woods, we got to the edge of that uh, agricultural field. And there was a large 17-and-a-half-inch print. We paused long enough to take a picture of it and and measure it. But I'm going to tell you something. If that thing would have came out of that that wood line on all fours, I probably would have had a heart attack right there. (laughs) I'm telling you, I was... uh, I was not in a good place when I left out of there. Bob and I uh, got back to our cars. It was already getting dark. Got back to our cars at McDonald's. That's where we parked our cars. And um, uh, we said our goodbyes. I said bye to Bob. Bob drove back to his house. I drove back to mine about 50 miles away. And for some reason, I was so hungry. And I was craving for a cheeseburger of all things. And that's what I ate on the way home. And I couldn't understand, well, you know, why do I want cheeseburger? I don't eat cheeseburgers. And then as I, as I started to ruminate on this, 
it dawned on me that when babies cry, when infants cry and they're upset and, and mothers breastfeed them, it's, it's a chemical in the mouth that soothes and calms them down. And it was that, it was that chemical probably in the dairy that I needed to settle myself down because, um, it wasn't until I got home that I rushed downstairs, took out that, that memory card, uploaded that into my computer to look at it because I had to see, I had to, I had to, to confirm, yes, I, I wasn't seeing things. This is what I seen because I snapped a picture of it. And, of the bean? Uh, and it's posted on my group site, by the way. So that's how I got started in this, and, and uh, it's been a um, a work of uh, I, I wouldn't say a work of pleasure since then, but it's it's been a work in uh, progress, and I've been retired for nine years now, and probably have accumulated uh, somewhere between uh, forty fifty thousand reports from all across uh, North America. That's an insane amount of reports. So there's a lot to be there's there's a lot to learn, and there's a lot that that uh, I don't know, a lot that people don't know, but uh, I make it my point to to share what I learn, and if people agree with it, that's okay. If they don't agree with it, that's okay too. Um, but um, as a profiler of of Bigfoot Sasquatches, everything, everything that I see, um, I try to unravel the, the, the puzzle because everything, everything that they do, there is a purpose. I don't believe in it. I don't believe in coincidences, Eric, everything in our I'm, life I'm, is, I'm with you on that. is purposeful. Everything happens for a reason. And some of the things that I shared with you tonight ought to illustrate exactly what I mean. Everything happens for a reason. And when you go out there uh, in the wilderness, and, and by the way, let me just make this clear. I am not a Bigfoot researcher. You, you don't put a, a white gown on me, and I don't put white gloves on and go out with a uh, magnifying glass and sleuthing around like that. I'll go out for hikes. I'll take pictures. Uh, I do like going out. I like the camaraderie that, that we share with our friends and stuff. But um, I took one bite of that apple, and I'm going to tell you, as a man to another man, I don't need a second bite of that apple to tell you that it's an apple. Uh, I could care less if I see another one of those creatures. And that's my fear of, of putting myself in a position to actively mm -hmm. go look for them because I've, I've been on the fence mm -hmm. so many times mm -hmm. and I've lived with myself for 56 years. I know who I am and there is a part of me I spent years as a bouncer. I'm not afraid of many people. I am well versed in the use of a sidearm. I grew up from the age of 15. On a, I was on a, a pistol a competition pistol team with my dad. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have a whole lot of fear of, of the natural. <laughs> um, but I, I've tried to reconcile many times in my head how I would respond if I were to see one. Mm -hmm. And every time I think about it, I have a different response. And, and I don't think many of them have been a positive. Well, my friend, I can tell you as a, as a person... I call myself a data miner because that's what I do. And um, to accumulate this kind of data, I can tell you that that there are 
numbers of people who have had nervous breakdowns. They've had post-traumatic syndrome. Um, they've had uh, uh, fainting spells. Uh, they've thrown up, vomited. They uh, shudder at the thought of CNN. And, and there's a report out of out of uh, Kentucky or, or someplace down there that I recall that a, a grandmother, it was said that a grandmother, um, this family that was so bothered and so annoyed by Sasquatches coming around their house, I mean, they were used to it, uh, That and the grandmother was so frightened over it, she supposedly ran through a drywall, I mean, broke right through a drywall to run to the bathroom to lock herself in the bathroom. Knock the drywall down off the wall to get to the bathroom. Jesus. Another young man, another young man in a, in a separate report, it, it was sad, it was reported that um, uh, he went outside, I guess he, I guess he was the man of the house at the, at the time, and when he went outside to confront the uh, Sasquatch, he ran back in and knocked the screen door down off the uh, frame off the door frame, knocked it down to get in the house. So much for being the man of the house. Yeah. Um, and then we've got, we've got reports of, uh, people such as yourself and myself. We have families. We, we, you know, we, we protect and care for our families, but they put up with the, they put up with the nonsense for so many years. They've reached the point where they can't do it anymore. These Sasquatches are crawling on their roofs, uh, eating up their uh, livestock, mm-hmm. um, and they uh, they decide one day they've had enough. They go visit a realtor, and they put the they put the property up for sale. And he says, "You know, I don't want my family at risk. I don't want anything to happen to them. But I'm not living like this again, and I'm not living." not living around them coming into my yard, disturbing my peace. Uh, so I'm putting the property up for sale and I'm out of here moving away, moving to the city, you know, wherever they're going, they're, they're moving away from that. And I've seen that many, many times, many times. And here's the problem. And I think a lot of that stuff goes back to, I'm not a, I'm not a habituator. I'm not a gifter. I've never believed in that, never done it. Uh, and still, I can say that I can I can tell you with a straight face today that I've never given food or, or anything to these things because I believe that I believe in the idea that when we go out there, we go out there and, um, you know, they might not like it when we walk around in their in their nesting areas, in their habitat, and you've heard this before. You know that's their living room. We're walking around. We're the strangers walking around there. So you do that kind of stuff. You go out there and you 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 go out there to their nesting area, and you pee. You leave a mark. You leave your scent. They know you or you leave some honey or peanut butter for them, you better hope that you live nice and far away because they'll come and visit you. You visit them, they visit you. And that's the way it goes. And that's the way, that's the way I see a lot of these things happening. So in, in the case of a man where, where uh, they're forced to flee their home, their property and stuff, uh, it might have been a situation where for years whoever lived in that property before him probably, you know, knowingly or unknowingly was throwing food out, out the back door or even feeding them, gifting them. And then when they died or uh, sold the property and moved on and it stopped, the former property owners didn't, Who's going to tell? Who's going to tell a prospective buyer of the property? Oh yeah, the, the house is haunted. Uh, we got Bigfoots yeah. hanging around. But if you don't feed them, 
they're going to come over here and pound on the door and walk around on the roof and, and scream at you, wake you up uh, 3 o'clock in the morning. Nobody's going to say that. Nobody's going to do anything that's going to harm their their chances of selling their, their property. Right. So another yeah. person comes in there unwittingly, uh, and then he has to endure all this 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 uh, needless harassment and stuff. So it's it's a vicious circle, and uh, somebody has to pay for that. And and unfortunately, it's people that don't know anything about these things. They're unaware of them, and they're not prepared for it. And uh, so for that reason, it's like. It's like somebody going to a public bathroom and leaving a mess and leaving it for somebody else to clean up, to take care of. It's not good. It's not, it's bad manners. It's uncultured and it's not social. You don't do that kind of stuff. Good people don't do that kind of stuff here. That's the way I look at it. What you say resonates with me very strongly because what you're articulating are our feelings that I've had about this subject matter from the standpoint of being somebody that is considering going into the woods to look for these things. It resonates with me because it always comes back to me as a bad idea. And, you know, it, it makes me, it makes me angry with whatever powers that be who, who must, obviously know that these things are are out there and exist that people are not given the benefit of the doubt of, of being told that these things are out there and that these problems do exist mm-hmm. and it's it, so when, when I came on here uh, I hope to touch on a few things real quickly and explain exactly what I do as a profiler. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I leave, I hope that um, some of your listeners will will understand a little bit about what I do. And um, if you don't mind, I'll share some of that right now. Absolutely. Please do. Well, what I do, I've got, I've got four databases and I have, I own a Michigan Bigfoot database, which is the largest um, perpetual Bigfoot database in, in the state. And it has over 17, uh, 1,700 reports going all the way back to the uh, late 1,700s. So Bigfoot Sasquatch has been around Michigan for a very, 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 very long time. It's not a new phenomenon. In fact, some of the earliest... Uh, French um, traders, fur traders, and missionaries encountered them back in the 1700s. And for that matter, the only time a foreign army set foot on the state of Michigan soil during the 1800s, during the uh, British-American War, 1812, it is written in their uh, memoirs, some of the British officers, as well as the American officers, encountered Bigfoot all the way from, from Monroe uh, to Wyandotte to uh, Gross Points and further up into Michigan. And even in the city of Detroit, where Fort Detroit lays uh, or lied, um, they, they were bothered by Bigfoot's crawling the uh, stockade walls, stealing food, stealing food um, from the soldiers and stuff. So it's it's there's a long, long history of Bigfoot Sasquatches in Michigan, and um, there is an there is an old account of a French um, explorer who encountered uh, a Sasquatch on the riverbank. And, it, and uh, he, he, it, it is claimed that he took a sword, you know, the old uh, explorers, if you, can, if you can picture them, wearing a, wearing a scabbard with a long sword that he had to beat a, uh, 
one of these beasts with the sword defended off because it came charging out of the uh, weeds at him. I'm going to end this episode here. I want you to keep your eyes open for part two with tonight's guest. Val and I will delve into the many different data points that he's amassed throughout over 40,000 reports of these unique beings. I want to hear your story. I want to hear your experience. So email me at contact.uncomfortable at gmail.com If you enjoy the show, then leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. Share the show with your friends. Share the show on social media. Make sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. All at Uncomfortable Podcast. And until next week, my friends, stay uncomfortable.